Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as though uh, those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. In chapter 7. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at them and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had seen, sorry, and those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Luke chapter seven, uh, verses one to ten. This account of Jesus with the centurion's uh, servant. That's the passage uh, before us today. Uh, as we have already mentioned, the, the new year and, and looking ahead. That's what we tend to do, isn't it? At the start of a new year. And as we think about the year ahead, there are lots of ways that we can think about it. But one of the ways that we can think about it is as a, a race. A race that will have all sorts of twists and turns, but a race that we're called to run, uh, the race of faith. We're called through the coming year, as those who belong to Jesus, to keep on trusting him, no matter what happens. And the writer of the Hebrews reminds us that we, if we're gonna run the race of faith, well, in fact, if we're gonna run it at all, uh, we have to run it with our eyes fixed, focused <laughs> upon the Lord Jesus, uh, because he's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who, who gets our faith started, who begins our faith, and he's the one that will complete and perfect our faith. We have to run with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And so right at the start of this year, in the first two months, January and February, we're going to be giving ourselves to listen carefully to just two chapters of Luke's gospel, chapter seven and chapter eight, with the, with the aim of, of focusing our minds, our eyes upon Jesus. And as we go through these two chapters, we're going to s slow down a little bit, maybe take slightly shorter passages than we would usually do. But we're going to see like two themes that keep coming up over and over again. One is uh, the theme of the saviour 
and his salvation? What kind of salvation does Jesus bring? And the second theme is going to be the theme of the believer and their faith. What does it mean to trust Jesus? What does faith look like? So we're just going to kind of repeatedly come back to those two big themes each week. Jesus and his salvation, what's it all about? Us and our faith, what does it mean for us to trust him? And Matt read to us there from the very start of Luke's gospel. And Luke there describes what made him pick up his pen in the first place. And he said he's, he's, he wants to write an orderly account about Jesus. He's spoken to eyewitnesses and people who were in the know at, at the time. Luke is writing within living memory of the Lord Jesus. And he set himself to write an orderly account about the things that have been fulfilled through Jesus. And his purpose is that so his readers may be certain without without doubt, be certain about the things that they've been taught about this man, Jesus. And it is an, it is an orderly account uh, and there is a kind of structure to it. And I, I sent an email out this week with a kind of introductory notes on these two chapters of Luke's gospel. But you'll see there right at the start of chapter seven, Luke says, after he had finished all these sayings in the hearing of the people. And that's like Luke's way of saying, okay, new section. <laughs> Jesus has just been teaching a remarkable uh, sermon. Uh, and now we're kind of moving into a new section. Uh, and Luke flags that up as he often does in his gospel, just with this kind of simple sentence after he had finished all these sayings. We know there that Jesus uh, is in Capernaum because Luke tells us that's in the very north uh, of Israel. It's uh, in Galilee, Jesus' kind of home region. Uh, and so Jesus has been teaching the crowds in his home region. Uh, and now he, he enters uh, Capernaum and he has this encounter with uh, a centurion. A centurion, as we begin, we're just going to kind of do introductions. Uh, so here we go. Let me introduce you uh, to Mr centurion who who is this man we, we're told quite a lot about him we're told that he's a man of authority even just by the description he's a centurion of course he's a, a man of authority a centurion typically would have a hundred soldiers under his authority who answered to his orders, sometimes a few more, sometimes a few less, but that was the idea that kind of size of of uh, a group of men. And there's a historian uh, I read this week called Polybius. Polybius. <laughs> Everyone now is wishing that their parents had called him Polybius. What a good, strong uh, Roman name. Uh, Polybius, he writes this, uh, the qualifications for a centurion. He says, a centurion uh, must not so much be seekers after danger as men who can command, steady in action and reliable. They ought not to be over-anxious to rush into the fight, but when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground, even to die at their posts. So that's the kind of man this centurion was, a man of action, a man of integrity, a man of uh, authority. And we know that he's a man who's used to giving orders because he tells us as much uh, in verse 8. 
He says, I'm a man under authority and I'm used to having authority as well. And I say to this person, go, and they go, and this person to come, and they, they come, and this person to do that, and they, they do that. And this centurion understands how authority works. He understands how authority works. So he knows that his authority isn't his by kind of, because of who he is. <laughs> he has authority because he is under Caesar. And as he submits to Caesar, he has all of Caesar's authority. So when he speaks, it's as though Caesar speaks because he's in submission to Caesar and therefore the men below him obey. He understands how authority works. And he also understands that uh, this authority must be used for good, for the good of others, for the good of those who are under him. And not everyone who has authority understands that. Someone got me a book uh, last year and the title simply was Authority. Uh, it's a fascinating read, but in the book, there's five principles for the right use of authority. And one of the, the principles uh, in this book is that authority doesn't steal life, but it creates life. So people in authority don't squeeze the life out of those below them, but they create a, a culture where people can flourish and grow and live. And this centurion understands that. You can see that from the way he treats his, his servant. So in those days, servants were considered your, your property yours to do with what you want. And yet this man values, we're told, he values his servant. So much so that when he's sick, he's concerned. wonder how many Roman centurions in that day were concerned when their servants got sick. But he's concerned and he wants to do something about it. So this man is a, a man with authority and he understands how authority works and he uses it well. He's also a man who's respected. He's respected and he's respectful. <laughs> we can see he's respectful in the way he treats his servant. We can see he's respectful in his approach to Jesus. He doesn't kind of march up to Jesus' door and bang on the door. He sends a delegation, a delegation of Jewish elders. He understood the, the customs of the Jews and Gentiles and that the Jews didn't like to, to have Gentiles in their home. And so he sends a delegation. He's res respectful. And in turn, he's respected. So these Jewish elders, they speak very well of him, don't they? They say uh, to Jesus, this man is worthy. He's a worthy man. He's, he's worthy for you to have to heal his servant. Maybe the fact that this man had also funded their synagogue had something to do with it. The Jews in the area where this centurion lived needed a new building and this centurion, it seems, had stumped up the, the cash to provide that building for them to meet. As I read this, I thought we could do with a friendly centurion <laughs> living in, uh, in the Arkham area to to fund our building project. That's generous of him, wasn't it? So he's respectful and he's respected, but it's not really uh, his authority uh, that's remarkable or, or his respectful manner uh, that's remarkable. What's really remarkable in this passage and what makes Jesus, 
marvel. <laughs> Is this centurion's faith? The centurion, when he's seventy sick, he sends for Jesus and he asks Jesus to say the word and heal his centurion, to heal his servant. And, and, and Jesus says, I, I've not seen faith like this, even in Israel. And he marvels. There's only two times in the Gospels where Jesus is kind of responds like this, where Jesus marvels. There's this episode where he marvels at the centurion's faith. The other episode is in Mark's Gospel, where Jesus marvels at the unbelief of his hometown people. So on the one hand, he marvels at the unbelief of those who have grown up and seen Jesus grow, uh, his hometown, the men of his hometown. And here he marvels at this Roman soldier's faith. And we're really just going to focus in on this uh, centurion's faith this morning, because I think that's where the focus of the passage is. And we're going to see two things. We're going to see the root of this man's faith and the fruit of this man's faith. A nice agricultural metaphor. The root of his faith and the the fruit of his faith. And hopefully as we do that, we will learn something about our own faith and what that means for us uh, as we live following Jesus. So first of all, the, the root of his faith. So here's this man, this centurion, picture him. We've got this kind of thumbnail sketch of him. He's a man of integrity and authority. He seems like a really likable guy to me. (laughs) And he has this servant that's sick. And the servant's not just got kind of a cold. He's not even got a bad dose of man flu. He's sick and he's on the point of death. That's what Luke tells us. This this servant is, is desperately sick. And the little phrase that drives all of the action in this whole passage, you can almost just skip over it, is there in verse three. It says, when the centurion heard about Jesus. That's what drives all of the action in this passage. The centurion had heard about Jesus. We're not not told exactly what this centurion's heard. But we are told that he's heard something. We don't even know if this man ever met Jesus. Do we? He sent the delegation to Jesus, uh, the the Jewish leaders, uh, to ask Jesus to come and heal his servant. And then while Jesus is on the way, he sends some more friends to say, no, actually, don't don't come under my house. Don't come to to my house. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Just say the word. We don't even know if the centurion actually even met Jesus, but he did hear about Jesus. And that fact helps us to think clearly about this word faith. This word faith. Some people, the way they talk about faith, seems to give the impression that faith is some kind of mystery substance that some people have and some people don't. You know, there's people out there and they're people of faith and there's other people out there and they just don't have any faith. But the reality is for all of us, we, we all 
we all have faith. We all put our trust in something. We all put our confidence in, in something or someone. And this centurion's faith didn't kind of just spring from nowhere. It sprang from what he'd heard about Jesus. What he'd heard about Jesus made him realise that when he came to his servant's sickness, he could trust this man. He could have faith in him. Faith has a root, a basis, a foundation. Let me just try and illustrate this. Let's imagine I'm wanting to get some building work done on my home. If you've been to my house, you'll know I'm not a, a great when it comes to DIY. I've got some limited skills. But if you'd seen the kind of job that I did on fixing our kitchen cupboard this week, you would know that the word limited really means limited. Uh, but say I want to do some building work on my house and uh, I want to find a builder to do the work. Uh, what? And I want a builder that I can trust. What, what do you think I do? Do you, do you think I kind of just sit there trying to summon some, some kind of feelings of trust and confidence in builders in general and then just, just get out the phone book and, oh. No, no, yeah, I'd get the, the phone out, wouldn't I? I'd get on Google. I'd look on Trustpilot, see who's got those good reviews. I'd speak to other people. I'd want to hear what they had to say about this builder. And I'd, I'd ask around. And eventually I'd get to the point where I feel like I've heard enough and I'm going to go with that builder because... He's someone I can trust. I wonder what it was about Jesus that made this centurion think, I can trust him with this. I can have confidence in him. Well, it was what he'd heard. He'd heard something, hadn't he? He'd heard something. Faith, we are told in, by the apostle Paul, faith comes by hearing, by hearing the message, by hearing the word about the Lord Jesus Christ. As we set out into this year, we want to live a life of faith, don't we? We want to run the race of faith. And if we're going to do that, we're going to have to hear and we're going to have to keep on hearing the truth about Jesus because there's going to be all sorts of circumstances in the coming year where it's going to be really hard to trust Jesus. And so we need to keep on hearing. There's a song that we sometimes sing. It goes like this. I know not how the spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him. We don't know how it happens, but it does. And the Holy Spirit is able to create faith in the hearts of people as they hear about Jesus. I don't know about you, but there are times when, uh, when my faith feels weak. We just sang about that in the song. <laughs> when I fear my faith will fail. And sometimes during those times, I'm tempted to like, kind of almost like try and take my faith out of my pocket and examine it to see if it has some substance to it, to see how strong it is. And usually when I, I do that, it's just a kind of exercise in discouragement. <laughs> The minute I try and look at my faith and examine how strong it is, it seems to evaporate. And I, I'm almost filled with, with more doubts. But what, what I need to do in those kind of situations is not kind of examine my faith. I need to examine the root of my faith. And I need to hear again 
the truth about Jesus and remind myself of why. why. Why have I trusted Jesus? Why have I put my confidence in him? Maybe you've not put your confidence in Jesus yet. Maybe you've never trusted Jesus. Maybe you've never taken him seriously. The challenge here is he was a man who lived alongside Jesus, who, who lived at the same time as Jesus, this centurion, a no-nonsense man, a man of authority. And there was something about Jesus that meant that he was willing to trust him with his valued servant. So it was what he heard. It was what he heard. And as I've said, we're not told exactly what it was that he heard. But I think if we listen carefully to what the centurion says, we can connect the dots up, do a kind of Sherlock Holmes deductions. <laughs> it was obvious, wasn't it, that he'd heard that Jesus was able to heal. Why else would he send to Jesus? He'd heard the accounts of Jesus doing these remarkable healings. And healings without even really breaking a sweat. <laughs> just by just by speaking. He says, doesn't he, there in verse seven, just say the word and let my servant be healed. Verse eight, he says, for I too am man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go and he goes and to another, come and he comes. And so the centurion has sat there, he's heard these reports of Jesus healing and he's, he's tried to think it all through. And here's the, he's, here's the conclusion he's come to. Just in the same way that I order men around on the battlefield and say, go there, go here, do that, do this. Just in the same way, this man, Jesus, is able to order sickness and disease around. That's the conclusion that he's drawn that Jesus has authority over sickness. And I think there's a further conclusion that he's drawn. I think he's drawn the conclusion that Jesus acts with the authority of heaven. So Jesus has authority over sickness and Jesus acts with the authority of heaven. Why do, I, why do I say that? Well, just listen carefully to his words. He says, I too am a man set under authority with people under me. Did you see what he's saying? He looks at Jesus and he sees Jesus ordering terrifying disease around. And he realized that Jesus has that authority because it has been given to him that Jesus himself is a man under authority. And I, I think this is why Jesus marvels at this man's faith. Not because he believes that Jesus has authority over sickness, although he does believe that, but because he's made the further connection that if Jesus has authority over sickness, then he's acting with the authority of heaven. Because let's face it, who, who else has that kind of authority? <laughs> in chapter eight, we're going to meet the disciples and they're, going to, uh, they're, they're caught in a storm, a terrifying storm. They think they're going to die. 
and they see Jesus get up and rebuke the wind and the waves and the storm settles and there's a great calm. And the disciples are full of fear and the question that they ask is, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The answer is obvious, isn't it? This is someone with God's authority. And I think the centurion's made his, his own version of that question. Who is this that even sickness obeys him? Here is a man with God's authority. And remember why Luke is writing this gospel. He's writing because he wants us to be certain, to be certain about Jesus. That he's a man who has authority over sickness. And he's a man who has God's authority. Just uh, maybe, maybe we should pause and just let that sink in a little bit. Jesus has authority over sickness. What is one of the great problems in our world? disease. What is it uh, that makes those phone calls to the doctor to get blood results an anxious experience? It's disease. What is it that fills up our hospitals? What makes us pump millions and billions of pounds into the NHS? Sickness and disease. What is it that locked us all in our in our homes in 2020? Disease. I can remember early on in 2020, those kind of briefings that we had. <laughs> we all tuned into our TVs and we, we saw men stood before podiums with kind of writing on the front with different slogans and catchphrases and uh, men with different levels of authority and, and specialist knowledge. But none of those men behind the podium had authority over disease. That was a problem, wasn't it? <laughs> but here, Jesus, this, this man has authority over sickness. I think it's important for us this morning that we understand clearly what that means for us today as we trust in him. Maybe. Maybe for you, this is a, a kind of a very a subject that's close to home today. Maybe you're dealing with something yourself or in your family. What does it mean that Jesus has sickness, that Jesus has authority over sickness? Maybe, maybe this morning you're feeling fit and well, you're young. Here's, here's the thing, we need to get clear in our, our minds who Jesus is because living in this world, sickness is inevitable. It's inescapable. And we need to be convinced about what it means that Jesus has authority over sickness. So here we go. A few things that this means. This means that we can ask Jesus to heal us. 
That is a, that is an ex, that's what this centurion does. That's an expression of his faith. He prays, he comes to Jesus with this request. And when we're sick, we can bring our petitions and requests to Jesus. It also means that when we bring these requests to Jesus, that we can do so in confidence. Confident that Jesus has authority over sickness. We can ask and we can ask confidently because Jesus can absolutely do something about it. And at times Jesus heals. Sometimes that healing comes in very ordinary ways, ordinary. <laughs> Maybe you visit the doctor and they give you some pills or you, you have an operation and, and you recover. Sometimes that healing can come about in, in kind of astonishing ways. But we're instructed in the New Testament that when we're sick, we can pray about that. But here's the thing that I think is most important. Knowing that Jesus has authority means that we can trust him and continue to trust him even when he doesn't heal us now. I'm sure you, like me, know stories of people who seem to have set off on the race of faith. They appear to have been trusting Jesus. And then they've got sick or maybe someone they know has got sick. And then they've decided, well, they can't trust Jesus anymore. Now, I think what we see here, knowing that Jesus has authority over sickness, helps us to keep on trusting him, even if he doesn't heal us. Why do I, why do I say that? Well, these miracles that we're going to see, and we're going to see a number of them through Luke 7 and 8. I think their primary purpose is to give us snapshots, previews of what the kingdom of King Jesus will look like in all of its fullness. I think that's the, uh, the most basic purpose. In fact, when it says Jesus healed, or when the, the, the centurion makes the request for Jesus to heal his servant, the, the word literally is actually saved. <laughs> so it's a picture of, of what Jesus' salvation looks like in all of its fullness. And that kingdom of Lord Jesus has been established through his death and his resurrection. Isaiah says that by his stripes, we are healed. But the fullness of that kingdom is not yet. But we do read about the fullness of that kingdom in Revelation. And these are words that I try to read often and I want to read them for your encouragement this morning. The second to last chapter of the Bible says this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. On my desk in the surgery, there's a box of tissues. And the reason that box of tissues is there is because it's needed. Because one of the things about sickness and disease is that it makes us cry. It gives us sorrow. Can you imagine sickness and disease exists in a place where there's no pain, no sorrow, no sadness, no death? 
No. And one day Jesus, the one who has authority over sickness, is going to banish sickness forever. <laughs> now, I don't think the centurion <laughs> understood all of that about Jesus, but he grasped enough. He grasped enough to trust him. So that's the root of the centurion's faith. What about the fruit of his faith? You don't see, you don't see roots, do you? They're underground. But you do see fruit. How, looking at this account, how do we, where do we see this centurion's faith? We see, don't we, we've said in that the fact that he approaches Jesus and he makes this request to be healed. But lots of people do that in the Gospels. Lots of people come to Jesus for healing and, and Jesus doesn't marvel at their faith. So what is it? What, where do we see this man's faith? I think we see this man's faith in his posture towards Jesus. His posture is one of confident submission. Confident submission. I don't know if you noticed that. Everyone was saying about this centurion, he's worthy. He's worthy, Jesus, for you to have this, to, for him to have you to do this for him. He's worthy. But what does the centurion say? He says, Jesus, I'm not worthy to have you come under my root. No, Jesus, I, I understand you have authority over sickness. You act with the authority over, uh, of God and therefore you have authority over me. <laughs> I'm not, not worthy. There's a, there's a contrasting story actually in the Old Testament I think it's helpful to just lay, lay alongside this story of the centurion. Do you know the story of, of Naaman, the Syrian general who had leprosy? And he hears of a man in Israel, a prophet who can heal. And so he, he sends people to the king of Israel to ask for the healing. The king of Israel tears his hair out. Who am I? I can heal. And he sends for the prophet. What does the prophet do? The prophet sends a message back to Naaman, the Syrian general, and says, just go and wash in the river Jordan seven times and you'll be, you'll be cured. And how does Naaman respond? He's offended. <laughs> Well, so the prophet not even going to come and see me. I thought he'd come and at least, at least see me. At least come and kind of wave his hand over the spot and do, do something. I'm going to go and wash in the River Jordan. And actually, <laughs> Naaman's servant says to him, look, it's a very simple thing he's asked you to do. Why don't you just, why don't you just do it? Why don't you just trust him and do it? But, but this centurion's attitude is not like Naaman's, is it? There's no, he's not trying to buy Jesus off. He's not expecting Jesus to visit him and, and kind of uh, stroke his ego. No, he has no ego before Jesus. He, his posture is one of confident submission. He's not trying to twist Jesus' arm 
or buy him off. He says, Jesus, say the word and my servant will be healed. And here, I think, is an, is an important fruit of faith. And that is submission. You're going to see that faith looks like all sorts of things when it flowers and fruits. But one of the things faith produces is submission. Let me read you just a, a short quote upon this passage. Jesus notes this man's posture of submission and comments on the man's faith. To submit to someone's authority, to defer to their judgment requires faith. If faith is a posture of trust, then faith inescapably shows itself in the act of submission. Faith comes first, but faith is always followed by submission. If you don't see submission, then it's because there's no faith. I don't know about you, but I find those words really challenging because this is really where the the rubber hits the road. When I trust someone, I will defer to their judgment. When I trust someone, I will defer to their judgment. Go back to the illustration of the, the builder. You know, I've got my builder. I've, I've looked at the reviews. I'm convinced he knows his, his trade. He knows what he's doing. And I sit down with him and I want to, to chat through the plans for the project. And I say, okay, yeah, I want a door there. He says, okay, I want a window there. He says, okay. And then I say, there's that wall there and I just want to take that out. And then the builder says, no, sorry, we can't do that. That's going to compromise the structural integrity of your whole house. And I don't know if that's the kind of thing builders say. Maybe, maybe it is, maybe it's not. Uh, and I say, no, that, that's what I want. He says, no, we can't do that. Now I'm at crossroads. I can say, oh, that's fine. I'll get another builder. <laughs> or I can trust him. And trusting him will mean submitting to his judgment, to his words. That's what faith looks like. And it's the same with Jesus. In fact, our faith is only, our faith in someone is only kind of tested and proved when we disagree with them. It's easy to think I'm trusting someone when they agree with me on everything. Actually, I'm probably just trusting myself. But when the person I'm trusting disagrees me or says we should do something different, then faith is trusted. Uh, faith is tested. And it's like that with Jesus, isn't it? If you find you have a Jesus who agrees with you about everything, you're probably not trusting the Jesus of, of the scriptures. <laughs> you, you're probably just trusting yourself. Just in the chapter before, if you flick back to chapter six, uh, Jesus is teaching and he says some words there that go kind of against the grain of what we usually think. Actually, Jesus says lots of words that go against the grain of what we usually think. Here's, here's what he says. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. When someone hurts you, when someone offends you, when someone upsets you, not just a little bit, but really hurts you, 
when someone hates you, what, what does your own wisdom say? What does your own heart say? You know what my heart says? It says, oh, I'm going gonna, I, I gonna to mull on this. I am going gonna to let this brew. I am going to sit and think angry thoughts, and then I'm going to share those angry thoughts with some other people. <laughs> and Jesus says, no, no, that's not the way to deal with that situation. Love your enemies. Pray for those who mistreat you. Bless those who curse you. And I think, well, that's not, that's not what I want to do. That makes no sense to me. And right at that moment, faith is tested. What, what, what will I do? Will I trust my own judgment or will I defer to the Lord Jesus? And there are a million and one ways this happens in our lives. But the challenge of this passage is that the fruit of faith is a posture of confident submission before Jesus that says, Jesus, you know, you know best. In this situation, I, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> I don't know why you're doing it. But you know, and I'm going to trust you. I'm going to take your words and I'm going to apply them to this situation. I'm going to follow you. It's not what I want to do. It's not what I feel like doing. But I trust you. Maybe through today, you can think in your own life, if there's some area where you're struggling to trust Jesus. And then maybe think, is there something about Jesus that is going to give me confidence in him in this situation and going to help me to submit to him. We're almost through, but just as we conclude, there's something else about this centurion's faith. I think it's surprising. I think Jesus is surprised, if Jesus can be surprised. This isn't another point. It's just a very short comment. Jesus says, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When, uh, when Matthew in his gospel uh, relays this account, he adds some extra words. He adds this comment. He says, and I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. couldn't have a more unlikely candidate for faith in Jesus, could you, than this kind of Roman centurion? And yet here he is, full of faith. And just as we close, that reminds us that faith in Jesus, faith in the Saviour is for all kinds of people, not just for some kinds of people. God loves to work the miracle of saving faith in the hearts of all kinds of people by his Spirit. And we're all called to trust Jesus. And at the very heart of salvation, we're going to see as we go through Luke chapter 7 and 8, is the wonderful, wonderful truth of the forgiveness of sins. <laughs> that Jesus holds out to all who would trust in him.
some food for thought for us today. Let's not be those who hear the word and let it go. Let's be those who hear the word and hold it fast in faith. Let's pray and then we'll sing our final song. Dear Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for our wonderful saviour. We thank you, Jesus, that you have authority over sickness. And in this account with the centurion, we see not what you will always do for us, but what, the, what you will ultimately do for us. And we thank you that as we trust you, we have the sure and certain hope that no matter what we face, we will one day enjoy a resurrection body, complete healing, and we will live forever with you. Lord Jesus, sustain our faith, we pray, through all of the ups and downs of life. Apply your word to our hearts as individuals. Help us, we pray, for your glory. Amen.